So Jesus, in your name, I release the fire of cleansing over these dear ones. Wherever... Yes! That's just Sarah Jane. Yes! Every false pretender to the throne of your heart. I release a burning in this place that where it has been difficult for you to connect with Jesus in recent seasons, that it now becomes an easy thing, an oiled with grace thing, where you have struggled to find your God. Right now, I release a blessing in the name of Jesus of ease of connection with your King once again. where you have felt like your worship and your prayers bounced off the ceiling and you felt like it was a waste of time, I loosen the name of Jesus an ability to be intimate with your God again, like your heart cries out for. As we were worshiping, the, the word and the scripture I heard over and over is that great famous verse from Obadiah that it talks about possessing your possessions. And the Lord said to me during worship, these people are not possessing their possessions. They're not possessing what I bled and died for. They're not possessing the intensity of my presence that I want them to have. And so it is time for you to say, as Obadiah wrote, I want to possess my possessions. I want to possess the intense glory and the intense presence of God again in my life. And God says, I am not overlooking you. Did I not say to the 12 tribes that each would have a portion? Am I not a God who assigns fair and right and just portions to my people? Have I not got a portion for you? Have I not got buildings and land and premises for you to possess? Have I not got even the aroma of who I am for you to possess in your own homes? And the Lord is breaking off you that low-grade expectation that what you've got now of Jesus is all there is. So talk to yourselves and say, expectation, grow up a level. Come on, you talk to yourselves. Expectation, grow up a level. Amen. Have a seat, my family. Who, as ever and is often the case in my world, uh, the vehicle of the prophetic often comes through teaching in my life. I'm third generation um, uh, Bible teacher. My father and my grandfather were, were um, English Baptist and Irish Baptist, respectively. Uh, this is an Irish accent, by the way. And, um, and I love to teach. But this is a, a taught word for who you are right now. Wikipedia defines charismatic Christianity, also known as spirit-filled Christianity, as a form of Christianity that emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts and modern day miracles as an everyday part of life for the believer. So does anybody in this room consider themselves a charismatic? Oh, some of you aren't very sure. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, you believe in miracles as an everyday part of life. That's okay. R.T. Kendall, in his book, Prepare Your Heart for the Midnight Cry, just recently released, perhaps one of the most timely, if you're going to read a Christian book this year, apart from the Bible, uh, go to R.T. Kendall, really the poster boy of conservative charismatic evangelicalism. He shockingly has released this word. The charismatic movement, that's you, you admitted to it, of the last 100 years is an Ishmael, and not an Isaac. 
I think only somebody like RT could actually get away with that. And as that thought starts to percolate through our mind, it is very easy to be offended. Now, just you hang on a little moment, R.T. Kendall. Ishmael was second best. He was not the real thing. He was the poor substitute for Isaac. Ishmael was what got birthed when Abraham and Sarah were not handling very well the process of waiting for God to show up. And Ishmael was certainly man-made and not God-breathed. Ishmael wasn't the real deal and he wasn't the promise fulfilled. Have we really had a hundred years of thinking we were the radical cutting edge of the church only to find today that we were in a centenary of Ishmael? It would be hard to claim that what we have on the earth right now is the intense glory of God we have hoped for. How many of you prayed for somebody who was sick in the last month and didn't see them healed? That's most of the room. How do you feel about that? Not good. It is time to expect Isaac. It is time to expect the son of promise. It is time to expect the deeply authentic. It is time to expect God-breathed fulfillment into all his promises, not just for our lives personally, but for the church. In other words, it is time to contend again for a far greater move of the Spirit than we have ever seen. The best is yet to come. And I felt like your expectation had fallen off the wall and crashed like Humpty Dumpty into a thousand pieces in the corner and you couldn't put it together again. And I feel like God is saying to me that I'm here to raise your expectation that what you have now as church is a pale second best imitation full of religious hang-ups and man-made traditions in comparison to what God is about to release of an Isaac promised generation on the earth. So let me give you a warning or a heads up about this sermon. It comes from the heart of a deeply frustrated pioneer. If you like to be a settler, and some are given the grace and gift of a settler, this message is really truly not for you. This sermon comes from my heart that has looked at how I spend my time, has looked at how I live my life, and has come to another moment of deep dissatisfaction by what I'm doing and how I'm living. And I find, I don't know about you, that these moments of frustration seem to loop around in every well, I like to say every few years, but actually every few months, I feel another level of dissatisfaction. And perhaps my husband and I, who nearly died in January, pneumonia, pleurisy, pericarditis, and a heart attack, 41-year-old, fighting fit, healthy man, and we had to contend for his life. Perhaps we've had more time to reflect and less time on the road. Perhaps because we've just taken over um, Healing Room Scotland and all of Ireland and we've just audited that ministry and found volunteer after volunteer faithfully hanging on without seeing the power of God they dreamed of that has driven me to my knees to cry out, why God? Perhaps because Sarah Jane and I in the ministry in Glasgow Prophetic Centre have just got a brand new uh, city centre ministry building and we're trying to figure out how we allocate rooms and how we'll spend our time there. Perhaps because my mum is in the grave just a little over a year and after the shock and immediate coping, it has given way to a deeper thinking in me about God, what would a successful life look like? And how do I measure legacy that would be valuable? 
And perhaps my leader, the one whom I follow, King Jesus, has allowed a perfect storm in my life. And maybe yours too. Because he knows us better than we know ourselves and understands us even when we don't know what to pray for. Perhaps he has facilitated and enabled a concern to grow inside all of us that right here, right now is not how it's meant to be. You see, I can have biblical input every single day of my life and worship songs that pray on a loop in my home and still manage to have a household that has frantic, ungodly rhythms. We're under our breath. We're humming along the Starks to a tune of a different kingdom. A sinister and a dark kingdom. Oh, the need to do things, the need to produce things, the need to consume things. Oh, it's all about doing and moving at pace and having. I can have Bible verses, and I do, on every wall in my home, yet have unspoken rituals that reinforce my self-centeredness rather than my self-sacrifice. I can talk to Jesus all day long about very serious things and think I've got a really good prayer life, yet I am missing the heart-to-heart -heart connection with him because all my talk with him was about problem-solving like a work colleague's conversation. Every household, I think, has a tune that it hums. Every heart has a tune that it sings. And every single one of you in this room has a certain way, a cadence, a rhythm, and we sense it in each other. You've got your way of doing your life, and it's like a personal song. You've got a flow. You've got routines that are uniquely yours, played out every day. And my sense, very personally, is that I thought I was moving with the tune and the hum and the routines and the rhythm of heaven. I thought Jesus and I were completely aligned. I thought Jesus and I were always dancing the same dance. But I have a sneaky feeling... That when I thought I was harmonizing with Jesus and singing the songs of his kingdom, I was more often dissonant and more often out of tune than I ever had an eye to see. My routines were not of his kingdom as closely as they should be. More accurately... My routines in my week were not in line with his call on my life. Are your routines in line with the call of God on your life? My routines were not in line with the anointing he had given me. Are your routines in line with the anointing that God has given you? And I've often had quite a private thought. Oh, there are sermons, you know, you wish you never had to preach. <laughs> this is probably one of them. I'm done with not being honest. There was often a thought that I would have in the previous months... And I would say, Jesus, I don't think this is how you do your kingdom. I don't think this is how you do family. I don't think this is how you do finances. I don't think this is how you do time off. I don't actually know how you would do it, Jesus. I just know that I'm not happy with how I'm doing it. And I wonder whether God has brought us all to that place, if we're honest, 
and allowed us to start to feel the pain of the gap between as it is in heaven and how it is on earth. Am I talking to anybody? And I started to say, God, you have brought me to a place where people are celebrating us and celebrating our ministry and people are being nice about us. Who knows how rare that is in ministry? Something is really wrong because the anointing is supposed to challenge the status quo and the anointing is supposed to tap into the unrestrained glory of God which should press every button that people have and not receive warm applause. If everyone likes you, you are doing something very wrong. God, deliver me from people-pleasing. Somebody just needs to raise their hand and say, I'm having that. Deliver me from people. Deliver me from people-pleasing. So I feel like God is saying, it's time to take an audit of your daily routines. I don't mean the obvious sins and failures so that you can repent what you already know about and have already repented of many times before. I'm not talking about auditing known failure. I want you to look at something much deeper. I want to suggest to you that the people we are are produced by habits formed and routines engaged in. Let me say that again. The people we are is produced by habits formed and routines engaged in. You see, you and I are always building a pattern in our life. We're always making a choice that will shape who we will become. We're never doing a neutral act that will have no impact on our future. You are always in your choices right now, setting the tone for how you're going to feel about your life many months from now. You are always framing your future with choices that you are making today. And how you are planning your days will build you into the likeness of Jesus or it will build you into the likeness of another kingdom. So if I am frustrated as a pioneer right now, and it's easy for me to say, oh, we're Ishmael's like R.T. Kendall and not Isaac. Oh, you know, we feel a bit parlous. But the harsh and striking reality that should grab a hold of the very core of my being is that if I am frustrated about the power of God in my life, if I'm annoyed that I don't see the miracles that I've read about in Scripture, if I'm a frustrated pioneer and I don't feel as radical as I used to, if the trajectory that I thought I was on of the kingdom of God comes, has plateaued in my life, if I'm under an Ishmael cloud and I know that my life is a pale reflection of what it should be, what on earth was I doing months ago? What pattern did I put in my life that took me away from that? What pattern church leaders, wave at me if you're a church leader or a ministry leader. Okay, there's a fair few of you. Can we just be honest as leaders together? What pattern did we put into our churches that made our corporate culture so diluted and so tepid where it sounds good, but you and I secretly, if we had a tete-a-tete as leaders, know it's fairly ineffective. Let's ask it another way. If I'm called to be a trailblazing pioneer who sees the dead raise, the lame walk, the blind see, if I'm to be a radical Jesus person 
who doesn't want to wake up and find they have become old wine, what has to happen to me right now that I build it into my life so that I build myself into that place? David Foster tells this parable. There were two young fish swimming along and they happened to meet an older fish swimming the other way. The older fish nods and smiles and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and eventually one looks at the other and says, what on earth is water? This is water I've been swimming in and I'm immersed in a version of the good life that isn't as cutting edge as it should be. I'm swimming in the lukewarm. I'm living in the tepid and I didn't even see it. And I think the great lie is that there would have been a time where once you did something radical. Who's ever done something radical for Jesus? Where once you did history, something radical, and you thought it held you as a radical person forever. When did you last do something radical? And if you're going, phew, it was just last week. What about the time before that? God, would you give us new eyes? Just lay hands in your own eyes, my family. God, would you give us new eyes? Would you give us the awareness, truthfully, of where we really are? God, I have a sneaky feeling that I might need you to jolt me out of humdrum familiarity. African prophetess Betty King, she's London-based. She rang me recently and she said, some people just don't want to walk out their own journeys. Some people don't want to walk out the adventure that's for them. They don't want to put in the effort of seeking and finding, of not having and then having the pleasure of pursuit, the pleasure of building something into their life. But you've got a road to walk and I've got a road to walk. And I tell you this, on one day, we don't just think, oh, I think I'll be a radical person and then wake up the next day a radical person. I walk my journey every day into the radical place. Every day I choose the power of God as something that I'm dependent on. So how does an alcoholic get to be an alcoholic? It's every day I put in a drinking habit. I repeat my behavior. I form a practice. No one thinks, oh, I'm going to be an alcoholic. And tomorrow wakes up as a fully formed alcoholic, do they? It's a process of habit. It also works in reverse. Nobody wakes up and thinks, I'm going to be addict-free tomorrow. Time after time, day after day, it's a choice because there would be no need for AA if you could think simply think yourself in and out of a routine. I read a great book recently by theologian James Smith, a book called You Are What You Love, one of Christianity Magazine's top 10 best-selling Christian books from last year. And he says this, I must come to recognize the limits of my thinking. I am not just a container for ideas and thoughts. 
So let me switch that language up into the language of the apostolic and the prophetic. We are not to be those who only dream of a better future. We are not to be those who only think of a better future. We are not to be those who only have a vision of a better future. I cannot think myself into being free. I walk it out. I cannot think myself into being radical. I walk it out. I cannot think myself in a moment to be one in whom the power of God rests with weight. I walk it out. I cannot think myself in an instant into being an intense presence carrier who heals all the sick around me. I must walk it out. It's kind of what Philippians 2.12 says, continue to work out or walk out, depending on your translation, your salvation with fear and trembling. I don't need another supernatural school to fill me with more thoughts. I don't need to read another Christian book to make a decision. I need something more than thinking. I need something more than education. I need to start to create radical habits to become what I want to become of a radical presence. And I am a little bit, oh, I'm off script, and this is when I get a bit rude. Uh, just blunt, maybe blunt's better. I am fed up of people running off to supernatural schools here, there, and everywhere in the thought that if I sit in a class, I might come back radical. Okay, rant over, back, back, back. There is a consistent process to being radical. And that sounds like the most bizarre sentence. There is a what? Consistent process to being a radical person. So somebody got me this hula hoop. Okay. Please, I'm not going to do it. Don't worry. Oh, it's huge. I love the thought of Peter's shadow coming out from his circle, glory circle, and healing the sick as he wafted by. <laughs> that sense of this radical emitted glory that wasn't somehow constrained on the inside you have a circle like this do you know that that you are constantly giving out a color a smell a hue an emotion and actually because we're familiar with what each other carries we know who to go to to stand in their shadow and stand in their circle when we need different things. So I know that my mentor and boss, Dr. Sharon Stone, if I want prophetic input and wisdom, I go and I stand in her glory circle. In fact, she was in the middle of a meeting in her house just a couple of weeks ago and her tech guy called her and said, I've gone to the computer shop to pick up your computer and they have lost a part of what you sent to them. And she yelled out, tell him I'm in a meeting, but he accidentally put it in the bin yesterday. And of course they went to the bin and they find it. That this prophetic grace that comes off her is a consistent radical process. And this, the church is a place of overlapping circles. The workplace is a place of overlapping circles. The family is a place of overlapping circles. And so if I go to John 1, well, sorry, 1 John 4 verse 4, he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. See, I remember the time I first got that verse under my skin. I was in university, so this is 23, 4 years old, in my teens. And I'm challenging this guy who's sitting in my, my, my dorm room in uni. Um, 
And I'm saying to him, you shouldn't be listening to all that Megadeth music. And his eyes glowed red. And this demon, I'd never seen a demon before. I was a little naive 18, 19 year old. I am up out of my room like a shot. Oh my goodness, his eyes closed. I thought that was something you just read about in books. I'm hurtling down the corridor to the kitchen. I'm in the kitchen going, he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. He that is in me is greater than he in the world. If I actually had any true belief in that scripture, I would have absolutely stayed put. That power-packed truth that he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world that should enable me to be the spiritually dominant force in my circle over any power of darkness. So if I go and I have a conversation with an atheist, my spirit, one with the Holy Spirit, is carrying truth in my circle in a dominant form. And so the whole way through that conversation, irrespective of what is happening verbally back and forward, the Holy Spirit is more dominant than the deceiver in the atheist. And the whole way through the conversation, what is happening in the spirit world is that my circle is shutting down deception just because I showed up. So my circle should be one that sets the tone. I'm not sensing temperature. I'm setting temperature. I'm not sensing standards. I'm setting standards. But the reality of all of that is that it just doesn't happen. And you know when your boss walks into the room, you suddenly do a little bit of a shift because you want to look good. You want to give an extra little oomph of performance. Because you know their circle emits authority. They've got used to wearing it. And you know you respond differently with an old boss who's got used to authority more than you respond to a new whippersnapper boss who's not used to authority. Isn't that true? You'll try it on with a new boss. So when I stand next to you, I am not just sensing, oh, the fleeting thought of, what am I going to do to pay my bill? I am more likely to be sensing a lifestyle where you are habitually panicking about the provision of God. And so the nonsense, oh, can demons read my thoughts, is a, is a foolish question because you so emit a habit of your life. The demon doesn't need to read your thoughts. He can tell by looking at you what you've habitually built up. Wow. So let's get to the business end of this. What three habits, we'll just go through these quickly, do I need to engage in that repeatedly that will narrow the gap between my thoughts and my actions? Oh, I'm a radical Jesus freak. Oh, my actions don't back that up. Between thinking I'm radical and being radical. What's going to stop the Ishmael cloud of pale dilution I feel all around me? Let's, if you've got a Bible, open Genesis 1, verse 27 to 30. Sarah Jane, could you read those three verses? Do you have those handy? Genesis 1, 27 to 30. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, 
Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Thanks, Sarah Jane. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're going to need to hear these three things. If they're asleep, give them a short stab with your pen in the leg. <laughs> okay. These are the greatest verses for understanding how to live in your circle biblically, radically, consistently. The great commissioning verses at the creation of man. I am made in the image of God. Now, who, wave at me if you know that's true. Now, wave at me if you know that's also a task that you're working on. Okay. The image of God phrase, I am made in the image of God, is a rich, loaded phrase for the Christian. It is like spiritual medicine. So I want you to say to your neighbor, you are made in the image of God. I am made in the image of God. And again, I own it. I am made. Okay, that means you've been given royal office. It means that you have the capacity for doing greater things than you are currently doing. It means that there are probably things in your destiny that you have talked yourself right out of. It means that you are probably settling for far less than you have been given. It means that you are God's representative. You are God's trusted agent in the world. It means that you have granted authorized power to share in God's rule of the earth and its resources in creatures. It means you are God's image bearer. And every time you turn up anywhere, the people that you meet are meeting with the image of God. And if I start here with my prayers and I make this my meditation on a daily basis, I will find so much healing for the nonsense that has always beset me in terms of low self-esteem and image issues. I'm made in God's image. I'm, and you can feel that truth start to unfurl and start to kick out all those things that you've spent years in counseling for. Not that I'm knocking counseling, but I am a little bit. <laughs> and so this first habit in these three habits of the radical is to meditate every day on I am made in the image of God. It is a nourishing truth. It is a healing truth. And the first thing that God does when he interacts with man who he has just made is to tell them that they are in his image. So the first truth I've got to do business with as a Christian is understand that, that I am made in his image. I call this the set up truth for what comes next. You cannot do the next thing that God is calling you to, and I mean even the most mature seasoned leaders in the room, and I am preaching clearly to myself right now as this is all a bit of a self-preach. If I do not deal with that, I made in your image, I made in your image, I made in your image, as a habitual meditation, I am not going to get as far as the call of God on my life. Because the enemy is in the air. The enemy is here to steal. Distortion is all around. And the major distortion all around us right now in this generation is, look at my gorgeous selfie. Look at my image. I want to be authentic. I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to look like anybody else. I am going to so be me. And the Bible cries out completely contrary to the lie of the generation, be imitators of Christ. Be like Jesus. Be in his image. And the single most major shift I think we are going to walk into in the church in the next five to ten years 
is us knowing not who we are in Christ, but who he is in us. Did you get that? It's a major, major shift in revelation. Not who I am in Christ, but who he is in me. And that takes us from a lifestyle where we have been concerned for decades with our identity. And it takes us to a place where we are concerned with our authority. That's the difference. Because the enemy is devastating the nations and I'm worried about who I am. And it's ringing in my ears. Who am I? Who am I? I've got to find myself. I've got to get healed. And and the real question of this generation is going to be, who is Jesus? And our songs have got to come up to the point where at least in our worship we're saying his name. See, the enemy in Jesus, sorry, in us will defeat the enemy in nations because the battle is against principalities and nations change not by us looking at us, but us understanding who he is. I am made in the image of Jesus and who is Jesus? I used to preach a lot on A.W. Tozer's quote, What you think about God is the most important thing about you. And then I read a C.S. Lewis quote. They'd clearly uh, journaled back and forth and kind of sparred with each other. And C.S. Lewis is saying to him, no, Tozer, it's not what you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's what God thinks about you is the most important thing about you. Are you getting the difference? And I actually think we've had the C.S. Lewis generation Oh God, what you think about me is the most important. We got it. And now it's the time for Tozer. What I think about you is the most important. Because I'm made in your image. So if I can't see you, I can't outwork the power of God in my life. Turn to your neighbor again, but this time with some sense of understanding. I'm made in the image of God. It's like, it's like releasing a healing bomb in the room, isn't it? Again, again, come on, it's so good. I'm made in the image of God. Okay, point two. I think we're speeding up. <laughs> Fill the earth, subdue, rule, dominion, cultivate, all those kind of words. If you're taking notes, point two is about unfolding creation's potential. So the first one is you're meditating on, I'm in the image of God. The second is this, creation is clearly very good, but it doesn't mean it's complete. Creation did not come with an iPhone and a car or an art gallery or a school. God placed in us at creation, an invitation to unpack and unfurl all the latent potential that God folded into creation. It's the first words God speaks. Go and have dominion. Go and name the animals. Go and unfurl creation. Now, Tolkien, obviously of Lord of the Rings fame, has this great way to sum up these scriptures. He says, you are a sub creator. Say sub-creator. It means you're a created being who gets to create. All right? Now, you can either do this really well or you can do this really badly. You can stay unfolding what God wants to be seen in the earth right now. You can sub-create new body parts on missing limbs. You can sub-create the latest solution in your work when it's going to the dogs. You can sub-create a new structure of government. You can sub-create a godly administration in whichever workplace you find yourself in. You can sub-create scientific 
scientific breakthroughs and new scientific practices. You can sub-create new technologies. You can sub-create new medias and new stories. You can unfold the latent potential in creation, which is why you have to be attentive, more attentive than you are, to the concept of being in God's image or you will create monsters. I actually think this is the essence of a pioneer. I actually think this is what gets the pioneers up in the morning, the need to see the new. It it burns in a pioneer, the need to see the cutting edge. It's our greatest urge as a pioneer, not just to think radically, but understand how to work with a radical outcome. And pioneers get very hacked off very quickly when all they have is a radical thought without a radical manifestation. It's true, isn't it? And so the second habit, and write this down, is that you have to create a creative daydreaming space with God on a regular basis where you start to say, what is the creative solution that you want me as a sub-creator to manifest in the earth today? I'm not just believing for a change down the line. I'm expecting to unfold the latent potential of creation and to be given a creative solution on every occasion. And if I don't get into the habit of this type of conversation with God, I will never be radical and impacting. These are simple things. Third and final. Oh, smile at me. I heard a lot of nonsense on these verses, and I felt it was time we taught them out properly. Hmm. Okay. This concept that you see in those scriptures of subdue or dominion. A lot of bad press about dominionists, isn't there? There really is. You just have to agree. Yes, there is. I actually think this is where I personally feel most challenged. This is the one that brings me to my knees more than the other challenges. Because of the feeling of powerlessness that I have in my life. Jesus' powerlessness. Because when Jesus said, all power is his and sent me with that, all power I pass on to you. Why is my life so pathetic? See, I'm not in the Garden of Eden anymore, and neither are you with all these nicely defined boundaries. So as the body of Christ, you and I are called to be really strange. We're called to be really peculiar people. You're supposed to occupy creation and remind the world it belongs to Jesus. And the first part of that is I show up in the world and I try to keep out of a holy huddle. I live my life as a testimony to the kingdom that is coming. I live with that kingdom pouring out of me and everything that pours from me, everything that goes into this center is a foretaste of a coming holy city. It's pars, pars, Irish pars, it's love and it's priorities. And the way I work is a sign of how you do work in the kingdom of God. It's how you're going to work in the holy city. I am, get me here, because this is the real nub of dominionism where it goes wrong. I am not here to rule the world. I am here as a witness and a sign of part of the kingdom that I inhabit. And perhaps the best phrase I have heard that summarizes this comes from James Davison Hunter. He's a professor of religion and culture and social theory at the University of Virginia. In his book, To Change the World, he says, How you best have dominion, how you best occupy is by faithful presence. Faithful presence. So as a Christian, I don't take myself off to live in a Christian-only city. I don't have passports that say I'm Christian. I don't live in a Christian-only country. 
I don't have Christian-only dress or Christian-only language because that's the way Islam does it. I turn up as a stranger with the citizenship of heaven and what oozes out of me is the ways of the kingdom of God and it's from the heart out, not from the top down. So my first ever job was as a pre and post abortion counsellor for the pro-life movement life just off Oxford Circus in London many decades ago now. And actually I parted company with them. Why? Because actually it is not in my heart to want to fight to change the abortion laws as a top-down, you must not. What is in my heart is that I so ooze the kingdom of God that people see that there is a different way to be a family. Uh, actually, the abortion law becomes obsolete because we've modeled something better. Faithful presence. And I think if I'm honest that we've been faithful but not with his presence we've been faithful but not with his power we've been faithful but it's been pathetically wishy-washy and this is the third and final habit I have got to get into the habit of praying for the power of God to manifest in my life in a regular way I have got to get into the habit of contending for the presence of God in my life. It cannot be any longer that we lean into the power of God in a ministry session when somebody needs healed because I will not have enough habit of dealing with his power for it to be manifest when it is most needed in a dying body. It cannot be that I only seek the face of God or seek the power of God in corporate worship times because even worship will feel like hard work and it will start to display, as I've seen in church after church after church, a collective agreed powerlessness in the people because contending for his power was never a private habit. It cannot be that I only call for the power of God when I'm in a personal crisis after every other option has run out for me. Oh, you might find that God turns up with a good dose of healthy compassion. But his best is that I habitually, faithfully, radically, privately contend for his power and his presence so that it becomes my everyday norm and not my last resort. Are my habits in prayer, though I think they're radical, are they actually sort of lukewarm? I am a frustrated pioneer. Because I know I need to contend again for these Genesis 1 things so that we manifest the kingdom of God and its power and love and its ways so that Jesus is kept as the viable option for this generation. In a day when everybody wants to be authentic, surely our best is to imitate Jesus. Our best choice would now be to habitualize radicalness in prayer, then in lifestyle, until I admit unconstrained kingdom of God, compelling glory. Can you give out those handouts? I must say, and I often say this when I'm teaching, I go to places and there's a great difference between a people who just want to be blessed and a people who want to be built. And I've prayed some prayers, God, don't take me to the people who just want blessed. Only take me to the people who really want built. And so as part of that, I'm giving these, these out because actually in speech bubbles... It has these three truths on them. And I really would love it if you could fill out 
that one of them says, if I'm actually made in the image of God and I owned it, what truth would it deal with in me? And it says, when will I give time to unfold creation's potential? And then another one says, what do I want to carry faithfully? Can I give you a top tip? The first answer in there should be par. I should want to faithfully carry par. Okay. So you have some homework. And one more homework. I've just put my team on a 30-day radical challenge. Uh, because we're, we're prophetic experts and our word of knowledge gift was quite frankly useless. So I'm saying to them, you need to get a word of knowledge every day for 30 days. Name, birthday, phone number, postcode. Accurate. Go find a victim to practice on. But I want to issue you with a bespoke 30-day challenge that what you write on this form you start to do every day for 30 days. You all got one? Wave at me if you've not got one. You all got one. You see it there. Sean Boltz actually did something very similar, and he tells the story that they had agreed that they were going to start to build this radical habit. Because you know it takes 21 days to work a habit. And they 10 minutes they had decided it, and one of them was her, his team was driving down the road home past a 7-Eleven grocery shop. And she heard the voice of God say, go and stand at the back of the supermarket on your head. But she had just promised to be radical for 30 days. So she pulled in and she said, I went to the very back so I could be a little bit hidden because I felt like a lunatic. And I did a headstand. I couldn't even do a headstand. But I did a headstand and she said, through the back um, staff only door, came a, a member of the team who saw me standing on my head, started screaming at the top of her lungs, fell to her knees and said, there must be a God, there must be a God. Five minutes beforehand, she had said, this staff member of the 7-Eleven supermarket, God, I don't know if you're real, but I'm going to go home and take my life unless you send somebody to stand on their head outside that door. <laughs> don't you love that <laughs> it is insane so the 30 day radical challenge can you stand for me family time I think, my lovelies, just to open your hands before your God. And I think probably we're going to have to start with some personal repentance. So just find your own words, friends, okay? God, I'm sorry. I feel like I've fallen off the wagon that I got on when I knew you. of Wanting to be sold out and laid down and passionate and all in or all out for you. God, I'm sorry that I have lost the, my way. I'm sorry for where I settled. I'm sorry for where radical was only something I used to do. I'm sorry that I can't even remember when I did something radical. God, would you take my hand? God, I don't want to walk round this mountain again. God, I want to walk consistently, habitually forward into the life of the truly radical pioneer. God, I want to know the power of what it's like to emit unrestrained glory because I've done business with you in my private zone. So in the name of Jesus, my friends, I loose over you the grace that you need to step into this. I wasn't expecting to do this, but I actually feel like some of you, it's not just you've got a little bit 
tepid because quite frankly, we all can say we got a little bit tepid. I don't think there's one in the room, otherwise you've got a spirit of lying and I'll deliver you. But I actually feel like God is saying there is an opportunity for a rededication for those who have really find that they've come to this uncomfortable place of being far from God. So if you want to come to a place of rededication, can you run to the front? Jesus, I want to be all in. Now, don't you guys, don't you dare in your seats think, oh, well, that's all for them. I think there is still a contending in this moment and even an on-your-knees time to cry out again for the radical power of God. Because if you're not carrying it, who will for the nation? Come on. Some of you actually need to get on your knees and show God you're serious. for how I have lived my life. Would you in this moment, like Isaiah 54 says, remember your mercy. Father, we take off the clothes of dullness that we have held on to, that we have wrapped ourselves in, that have brought us comfort and have kept us safe. Lord, we choose to remove them from ourselves. And God, we ask for forgiveness. Lord, you have made us the bright and shining ones, but we have chosen instead to hide that bright shining from the world. Lord, would you have mercy on us? Where you have ushered us to the front, where you have encouraged us by the unction of your spirit to move in certain ways, we have chosen to stay hidden. Oh God, would you have mercy upon us? Father, where you put your finger upon us and said, I choose you to be a burning one for me. And we turned away from your finger. We turned away from your gaze. God, would you have mercy on us? And I hear the Spirit of the Lord say, Oh, burning ones. Oh, burning ones. Oh, burning ones. My eyes are on you. And Father, our hearts cry, see us again, God. See us again right now, God, as we cry out to you and say, do not pass us by. Do not pass us by. Son of David, King Jesus, do not pass us by. We don't want to be left where we are. We don't want to be left where we were in yesterday's ditch somewhere, hiding from you. We want to be seen by you to burn again, oh God. Burn us again with your fire, God. Burn.
burn us again with your fire, God. Oh, burn us again with your fire, God. Mark us, brand us with your fire again, oh God. Burn me, God. Burn me, God. Cry out, burn me, God. If you want to be burned with the fire, the holy fire of God, if you do not want him to pass you by again, cry out for a fresh burning. I want to be branded with your burning. I want to be marked with your burning, God. I want to be marked as a radical one who is on fire for you, God. I want to be your burning one. I want to be, God, your burning one again. God, do not leave me in this place. I listen, Jesus' name, the burning, consuming fire of God over you right now from the tops of your head to the soles of your feet, a new and a fresh baptism of fire, the burning, consuming fire of God, the burning, consuming fire of God. We just ask, Father God, that it come and it completely cover everybody in this room. Oh, Father God, I don't want any hype, really, honestly, God, I'm so done with it, but I know that if I don't see the eyes of fire I might as well go home right now God I want you to so consume me like I have never been consumed before I want you to take over and consume me with your fire for Lord I feel like a dull ember and I know I need you to come like you did to Isaiah and Isaiah 6 with the angels of holiness, the seraphim, and start to burn me with heaven's coals. Desire. 